0: our text this morning is found in philippians 2 verses 1 through 11 if you're reading from the black bible in front of you it's on page 980 will you please stand for the reading of god's word with me so if there is any encouragement in christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. To the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's make sure you turn it off.
1: Why don't you guys pray with me here. Father, we love you. The longing of my heart is that our church would be a people who conduct their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would be a people who are marked by unity through humility. That we would live out our identity as people who have been saved by Jesus Christ and have been filled with the Spirit. God, these things are true of us for those who of us who are in Christ Jesus who have repented and believed. So Father, I pray that you would equip us to operate our lives in humility looking to the interests of others. Would we see Christ Jesus, the supreme example of humility, and have the same mind that he had? Father, I pray that you would kill our pride, that you would kill our disunity, that you would conform us to Jesus, so that we may behave as kingdom citizens worthy of the good news about Christ. Father, equip me now as I proclaim these words with the spirit come and, and use the words that I speak travel through the air to hit our ears, but would it not just stop merely at the level of hearing and just knowing, but it would travel down to our hearts and that the very words of Christ himself spoken through Paul to us in Philippians chapter 2 would bear an eternal impact on our souls from this day forward. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. It's Memorial Day, and so Tom asked a little bit earlier, um, those of us who served in the military, there was a handful of us. He was one. I know I've, I've served in the military. I know another brother back there, and I think someone else up here raised their hand. So um, this may not be an illustration that's good, but um, most times, in most ways, what we experience in the military can be played out in other areas. But um, I was a non-commissioned officer in the military, at, um, an NCO, and as an NCO, there's a level of leadership there. And as you just enter in as a private and an army and you start making your way up you're just bumping into people with various leadership styles and the way they lead and what they say and how they act and the motives behind what they say and the motives behind what they act and so it doesn't take very long before you you are just interacting with people in the military that you quickly can divide people into two categories you get these guys who are leaders who are basically out for themselves where they, they operate to get something for them. And it's basically, it's my way or the highway. I'm the leader. I'm going to sit back. You just go forward and you do what you, what you need to do. You just do it because I have authority to tell you what to do. And then you realize there's another category of leaders, of guys who are serving in a way where they're leading, but they're leading through humility. They're, they're leading as a way of serving. And when we come to Philippians, what we, what we see is the language that Paul uses specifically in verses 3 and 4 where there are people operating out of selfish ambition. There's people operating out of rivalry, out of conceit, out of pride, out of looking only to their own interests. I could see that in the military sometimes, right? So the bad thing was, in the military though, just because someone is leading in a way you don't like, maybe they're leading out of selfish ambition, conceit, or self interest, you can't just really say, well, I'm not going to listen to you because you don't really have that option um, in the military to tell someone with higher rank, I'm not going to do what you just told me to do. Um, But when you step out of the realm of the military and you just come into just that daily ebb and flow of relationships within the church, within the family, within your community groups, there is opportunity for disunity. And what Paul is going to be addressing here today as he takes us through Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, as he's going to address an internal issue that is happening amongst the Philippian believers. Those Christians who were at Philippi, there was something going on in their midst. There were people apparently operating out of selfish ambition, people who are operating out of conceit, out of excessive pride, thinking of themselves more highly than they ought to think. They are looking only to their own interests. And Paul is going to come and press on these believers that that kind of manner of life, that kind of conduct of life, is not to be had by people who are marked out by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we turn to Philippians, I mean, there's a handful of verses that Philippians gives us that are just a lot of these famous, famous verses. But if there is just one chunk of Scripture, the the thing that you could look back at all the writings, all the letters that Paul gave us, most people would come to a handful of scriptures and say, "Man, this was this was some of Paul's finest writing. These were some of the things that Paul was giving us. And when he penned these words, these thoughts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was giving us something deep, something weighty, something that is extremely true and extremely practical. And when we come to this section of Scripture in Philippians chapter two, what we have are, are just one of the gold nuggets of Scripture. When we when we come to verses 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. The phrase that's usually attached to these verses is the Christ hymn. It's this famous song where it's just stepping back and it's this explosive, extravagant, awesome, weighty, glorious language ascribing the beauties and the glories of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. But when Paul goes and pulls out this language of this Christ hymn, He's not just doing it so that the Philippians can merely have a systematic theology lecture on the study of Jesus Christ. I've said it again. What Paul is continually doing as he approaches the Philippians and interacts with the Philippians is he's doing this. He's giving them beefy, weighty, deep theology, and he doesn't expect them just to couch it in the cerebral. Their robust theology is meant to be rubber on the road that just practically engages them in the everyday of life. And that is exactly, again, what he's doing here. He's going to point to Christ. He's going to show that Christ is an example. An example of what? An example of humility. See, when we get down to verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2, Paul is still operating under the mindset of what we touched on last week. Philippians 1 verse 27 says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we said that word there in the original that gives us this translation, let your manner of life can also be translated as behave as citizens, only behave as citizens. Let your heavenly citizenship which is true because you have salvation with God the Father, express itself in a way that shows because I am a gospel citizen, my actions show and go forth and give forth gospel action. He's saying there is a certain way that we ought to live and conduct our lives that will outwardly express through action what is true of us inwardly, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been applied to our hearts. And that main exhortation of verse 27 of chapter 1 is the big overarching umbrella that carries all of the thoughts forward all the way into through chapter 2. And so there's nothing different about what we look today. This is just another way that Paul is pressing forward for us. Listen, do you want to know how to conduct your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus? And hopefully our answer is yes. And then Paul says, look no further. Here's another point. Last week it was this. If you want to live as a heavenly citizen, expressing your citizenship in the world in which you live, one thing is this. You stand firm in unity. When gospel opposition comes against you, you stand firm in unity. When people who are decidedly against you only for the reason because that you represent Jesus and you talk about Jesus and you share and you show and you're winsome for Jesus, we are to stand united in this thing. And then he turns the corner and goes, here's point number two. Do you want to know another way that you can conduct your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? It's this. He says you're going to, you need to stand united. He's recircling around to that idea of unity. That first point of citizenship behavior that is worthy of the gospel was this you need to stand firm in unity from outside forces creeping in on the church but this exhortation to stand firm in unity is an exhortation exhortation that is internal He's looking to the people that make up the body of the church. It would be like if Paul were standing here, he wouldn't be talking about those people outside these four walls, but he'd be looking at you guys in the eyes saying, listen, among you there is discord. Among you there is disunity. Among you there are people operating with hearts of pride, operating with hearts of selfish ambition, with conceit. You only give two rips about yourself. And he says that is not to be pride gives birth to disunity and we are not as gospel citizens to live our lives in this way we are to be marked by humility and through humility we will have unity within the body of christ now that's a big thing and then he's going to turn around and basically say this well how do you do that who's our example who who's actually even live their life in this way And that's where he turns in verses 5 through 11 and says you need to look to Jesus Christ because Jesus is the supreme example of humility. So this morning we're going to see that heavenly citizens are marked by unity through humility, which is ultimately modeled by Jesus. Paul's going to say that you need to be united. That's verses 1 and 2. Then once he says you need to be united, he's going to turn around and he's going to exhort them to be humble. Be humble. That's verses 3 and 4. And then he's going to set for them Jesus Christ, and he's going to exhort them to look to Jesus. He is the supreme example of humility. And then he breaks down how Christ modeled humility for us in that Christ hymn, that famous, awesome, weighty, deep chunk of Scripture, verses 5 through 11. So as we turn our attention, let's look to verses 1 and 2 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So with the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to another topic at hand in the Philippian church. He's still operating under that larger umbrella of conduct that is worthy of the gospel, but now he's turning his attention to internal matters. Last week we saw that Paul was calling the Philippian believers to stand firm in unity because of gospel opposition from the outside creeping in on the church, but now Paul is turning his attention to unity, and he's calling for unity that is internal among the believers. And the first thing that Paul is going to do is call the Philippian believers to be united. And the call for unity revolves around one central phrase. So when you're looking at verses 1 and verses 2, there are just a bunch of phrases, just short little phrases just built up on top of each other. If you can imagine Legos in your mind and you grab a whole bunch of Legos and you just start building them. These little, these little things, you just start going one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other. They're short, they're sweet, they're little. But what Paul is doing is he's building up a big argument and right smack dab in the middle of all of these little short, brief exhortations that we find in verse 1 and verse 2, there's just this little phrase tucked right in the middle, and it's this, complete my joy, complete my joy. That is the center, that's the gravity of everything that's going on inside verses 1 and 2. The call for unity revolves around the phrase, complete my joy. You've got those four statements beforehand that lead up to complete my joy. He's going to call them, saying, do you have any encouragement in Christ? Is there any comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy? So there's those Legos, right? He's building these things up, leading up to that phrase, complete my joy. And then on the back end of that, that center of what's going on in his call to unity, he gives four more phrases. He says, you need to be of the same mind. You need to have the same love. You need to be united in Spirit, being in full accord. You need to have one Mind. See, the basis for Paul's appeal to unity is found in Philippians 2, verse 1. Paul stacks up four emphatic exhortations appealing to various objective realities that have occurred in their Christian life. These four statements are the ground for Paul's appeal. See, Paul is making appeal to them. He's saying to them, Listen, you need to be united. Unity amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ is conduct worthy of the gospel. And then he turns around and says we're not merely to be united for united sake. It's, it's not like Santa Claus, just be good for goodness sake. No, there is an objective reality. There are things that are true of you. Because you are a heavenly citizen, you are a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. And because that is true, that becomes the very ground for the reason why I'm telling you, you must be united. So Paul turns and he gives these four four exhortations. And the way that he is wording these is not in such a way where he's calling into question whether these things are true. Because if you just read verse 1, notice what it says there. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and you can almost get the sense of, like, is he questioning this? Is there any encouragement in Christ? I don't know. Maybe, I guess, figure it out. He's, He's not saying that. The sense of what he's saying in these statements when he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, it's more along the lines of this. If you have any encouragement in Christ, as is indeed the case, then you need to think this way. If you have any comfort from love, as indeed you do, think this way. If you have any participation in the Spirit, which you do, if you have any affection and sympathy, which you do, you need to think this way. So he's not calling into question so much the sense of, I don't know if these things are true, please figure them out. But what he's doing is he's expressing himself in such a way, giving this fourfold exhortation to the flipping believers so that they can hear these things and go, yeah, yeah, these things are true of me. Yes, I do have encouragement in Christ. Yes, I have been saved. Jesus Christ has saved me and I do find comfort in this. I have encouragement in Christ. Yes, indeed, I do have comfort from love. It can also be translated consolation from Christ's love. Paul is again pressing home the reality of Christ's love that they've experienced in their salvation. So notice he puts before them Jesus Christ and says, Listen, you have comfort to your soul because you have Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ saved you. And not only that, he is the consolation of your soul. Because Christ's love has come to you. Then he turns to the person of the Holy Spirit. He says this, listen. Is there any participation in the Spirit? Yes, indeed there is participation in the Spirit. Paul's appealing to the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Philippians' knowledge of his indwelling and activity. What is individually true of them all, that the Spirit of the living God indwells them, is to be a uniting factor for this community of believers what they're meant to do is look around and go, okay, so, so what you're telling me is you have Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ saved you. Yes. Well, Jesus Christ saved me. Well, that's good. Do you have the Holy Spirit living within you? Yes. Well, I have the Holy Spirit living within me. Well, that's good. And so see, Paul's building a case. He's building his ground saying, if this is individually true of you, Christ has saved you. If this is individually true of you, the Holy Spirit indwells you. He's heading towards that place where he's going to go, good. See? Because this is true, there should be no ounce of disunity among you at all. He caps this off with that last phrase. If any of you have affection, sympathy, or it can be translated tender mercy and compassion, as is true, as is indeed the case, then you are to think this way. Paul is calling to mind the tender mercy and compassion of Christ, which they experience in their salvation the Philippian believers can say, we all have received these things, Paul. They could step back and go, okay, Paul has just challenged me in a fourfold way. In every way, their answer would be true. Yes, I have encouragement in Christ. True. I've experienced Christ's love. True. I have participation in the Spirit. True. I have affection and sympathy. And then Paul goes, good. I thought I was hoping you'd say. And so then he turns around and he Like a door swings on its hinge, we come to that little phrase, complete my joy, and what Paul is going to do is go, good. So you will complete my joy. My joy will be complete since you are holding to what I am expressing as true of you, then you ought to react in this way. You ought to think in this way. You ought to live out your life in this way. Because these things are true, the Philippians are to respond with unity. And that's exactly what we get him calling us to in Philippians 2, verse 2. Complete my joy. Respond in this way. Be of the same mind have the same love, be in full accord, be of one mind. They are to agree with each other. And this isn't merely intellectual, but more of a posture of heart. See, so when Paul comes to that idea where he says, listen, well, you will complete my joy. When I see you living out in this way, the cup of my heart will come to full, come to brimming. I will be made full. When you See, when I see you living out in this way, you need to have the same mind. I want you to agree with each other. And he's not merely pressing just some sort of intellectual assent to some doctrine. What he's doing is saying, you need to have this posture of heart. If the fourfold things that I just said in verse 1 are true then the way that you react rightly is to go, these four things which I know to be true here are to go from here down to here and it is to become the very posture of my heart and I am to live out my life in a way that rightly accords with what I'm holding true here because what I'm holding true here comes from here. Verse 1 is the grounds. Verse 2 is the action. They are to have the same love. They are to turn their attention from themselves to others. This is the right reaction to them having comfort from Christ's love. They're to be in full accord. They're to be united in spirit. They are to be marked by a, com- a community spirit of unity. They're to be a people where people, if they were to walk into their midst, the flipping believers, outsiders, new believers, someone traveling through town, someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, were to come in, there's to be such a winsome aroma of Christ in their midst that is leading to unity where people will go, man, these people are different. Like, he doesn't think the same way that he does. He votes this way, but she votes that way. He spends his money like this. She spends his money like this. But there's something, there's a tie that is binding. There is is a spirit of unity that is floating through all of them because they're all believers in Jesus Christ. That is the one common thread that unites them all. And then Paul turns around and he gives um, basically the exact same thing he said at the beginning You're to be of one mind. You're to be united in purpose. They are to be so gospel-oriented that as they relate to each other and care for one another, it becomes this this winsome, aromatic, man, people just come in and they just, they waft, they breathe in, they see, they think, they breathe, they feel Jesus Christ in their midst. He says, that's the way that you need to be united. You need to be marked out in this way. Because if the Philippians respond to Paul's fourfold exhortation, they will complete his joy. See, the means by which Paul's joy will be made full is by the Philippians agreeing with each other, having the same love, being united in spirit and purpose. They aren't merely to respond to Paul's call for unity through humility because it will bring him some joy. See, what he's not saying is this, like, listen, guys, please, like he's not groveling on his knees in Rome in that Roman prison cell going, don't you guys love me? I planted the churches, please bring me a little ounce of joy. It's getting pretty dark around here. So what he's not saying is respond this way, letting the response this way rest on the foundation of just merely bringing me joy. But what he's turning to them is saying is this, when you respond in unity amongst each other, rooted in this fourfold exhortation of salvation, of love, of participation in the spirit and affection and the sympathy, when I look in on you, seeing you live out your life in this way, it brings me joy. It'd be no different than me standing up here as your pastor and saying, my joy will be made complete when I see you live in such a way that images Jesus. So like when one of you guys come up to me and go, man, you know what? The word of God has really been, it's really been poking my heart. It's really been pricking my heart this week. And it led me to go share the gospel with somebody. Like what I don't do is go, good grief, man. You're living out the scriptures. That's horrible. Like I don't do that. Like I can adopt Paul's language or go, man, complete my joy. See, what you don't do is go and share the gospel this week because Pastor John wants to be made happy. No, you complete my joy when I step back as a person, as a shepherd for this flock of believers and go, man, God, my joy, my the cup of joy is brimming to full. Why? Because I see them living out Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Chapter 2, verse 1, is the reason why they are to put off the strife and the self-interest that is pervasive among them. But for Paul, this doesn't negate the fact that seeing his friends live in unity through humility will bring him joy. So Paul turns and he just looks right at them and goes, do you want to know another way that you can conduct your manner of life in a way that is worthy of the gospel? It is this, internally amongst you from brother to sister, sister to brother, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, believer to believer, to believer to believer, to pastor to believer, deacon to believer, just this big web of unity. That's what you need to be marked by. You need to be united. So then he turns the corner though and he doesn't just leave it up for grabs. Be united how? How? like through what means? Like be united if we all give like the same dollar amount in the offering plate. Be united because we're all singing the same song before the preaching happens. Be united because we all wear Delta shirts to work on Mondays every other week. Like how, how are we supposed to be united? And see, this is the beauty of Scripture because the Scripture doesn't leave us guessing in this. The Scripture comes and Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, presses before the believers and goes, you need to be united through humility. This is the path of true unity. Humility is the foundation upon which unity in the church rests. So now that Paul has encouraged the Philippians towards unity, the question becomes how? How do the Philippians live out this unity? And without missing a beat, Paul goes straight to the answer, The Philippians are to express their unity through humility. To be marked by selfish ambition, to be marked by conceit, to be marked by your own self-interest only is to live your life in a manner that is unworthy of the gospel. These are actions rooted in pride that inevitably give birth to disunity. So Paul breaks down his exhortation to humility with a negative appeal followed by a positive appeal. So look at verses 3 and 4 there right on the hills of his exhortation to be united, he turns and says, you need to be humble. And he says it like this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Look at the beginning of verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests. so he gives them the negative, here's what's going on in your world. There are people who are doing things from selfish ambition, doing things from conceit, doing things looking only to their own interests. That's the negative side of things. But he says you should be marked out in this way. Not the negative way, but in the positive way. Well, what's the positive way? It's the second half of each of those verses. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but positively, in humility, with a humble mind, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. See, what's going on in their world is there are people marked by selfish ambition. There are people who are operating according to their relationships, the way they talk, the way they act, the way they live their lives, the way a husband talks to his wife or a wife to a husband or parents to children or children to adults or elders, to those who are younger, or deacons, to pastors, or whatever was going on in that world, Paul notices this. There are people who have selfish ambition as the posture of their heart. Selfish ambition is a strong desire to achieve something for personal profit. It's basically this. I'm doing something for you, but you better know that I'm doing something to get something in return. It's people marked with conceit, which is excessive pride in oneself. There are people who are operating within the Philippian church going, I am out for myself. I'm doing this for me. I am self-seeking. I'm looking only to my own interests. Because notice here, what he doesn't say is, don't look to your own interests. That is a legitimate thing. But he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The Philippians are to be humble-minded. The spirit of discord that was among them couldn't be put away by any other means. Like, Paul doesn't say, hey, there's disunity here. Make sure you increase your financial offering to the church. What he doesn't say is there's disunity here. Make sure you pray some more. Make sure you read your Bible some more. Make sure you hang out with your pastors some more. Make sure you show up to, work, to church every week. Make sure you do good deeds at work. But what he turns around and says them, is this, do you want the cure for disunity? Yes, we do, Paul. Well, here it is. This is the only way. The cure for disunity is humility. There is no other means to kill discord. Their unity would be sealed once they adopted a posture of humility. And upon adopting this attitude of heart, they were to turn their attention to the interests of others just as much as they looked out for their own. Their humble-mindedness would be outwardly displayed through the action of seeking out the interests of others. So Paul turns and says, Listen, brothers, you need to be united. There's discord among you. Paul, how do we do that? Here's your answer. You live your life in humility. You need to be humble. And so, like, if we were just to close the Bible and, 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 and shut the doors there, I mean, we'd probably have a, a divided response among that, right? Some of you going, got it. Because some of you are like me. I'm a doer. Paul, you tell me to do something, please. I can make a list, and I can put a box, and I can make a check. Be united. Got it. Be humble. I can whip that out. Checklist. Good. Go. Thanks, Paul. Close it up. I'm out of here. But that's not quite the right heart attitude either, is it, right? Because there are some of you who are listening to this going, that is like an incredibly burdensome way. Like unity, seriously? Unity amongst these people? You're, You're asking me to think of that person more highly than I think of myself? You're asking me to look to the interests of this person here and not just to my own interests? that's impossible. Prove it to me that that can be lived out in that way. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes, man, I'm glad you're thinking that way. Verse 5, what's he do? He turns and says, you need to have this mind. What is the this mind that he is talking about there? It's everything that's just happening in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Hey, be united. Okay, Paul. Be humble. Okay, Paul. This mindset you need to have. Paul, how in the world can I have this mindset? And he says, well, listen, good news before I even get to the good news is this. You can have this. This is attainable by you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, if the gospel has been applied to your heart, it is attainable for you to image Jesus in this way. What way? In humility. In humility. Christ is our example. Listen, the Philippian believers, they had issues, right? I mean, it's not issues that are just isolated to the first century to the early Christian church. These are issues that are rampant even in the world of evangelicalism today. The Philippians were adrift on a sea of selfish ambition, conceit, and self-seeking And upon ending his call to unity through humility, Paul put before the Philippian believers the only hope that any believer has in killing sin. Paul says, do you want to live in humility? Take your eyes and cast them upon the face of Jesus Christ. The challenge for his friends in Philippi was to stop looking to themselves and to start looking to Christ Jesus, the supreme example of humility. Right? How do they get to that area of disunity in the first place? It's because they were looking down at themselves all the time. They were looking, but they were looking at the wrong object. They were looking at themselves going, I want something out of this. You serve me. I'm going to look only to my own interest. You serve me. I am the best thing going. I am full of conceit. You serve me. And Paul says what you need to do, brother, is lift your head off of yourself, and you need to look and cast your eyes onto Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the supreme example of humility, and he shows us that through his humiliation, Through him who was in the nature of God, emptied himself, humbled himself, died on the cross, only to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. See, man, this is the beauty of what the Christ hymn is about. It's not merely meant to be a section of Scripture, surgically removed, and to be looked at as merely a theological study of Christology. It can be like that. But Paul, what he does is he grabs this anchor of the soul, this deep, heavenly, glorious truth, and he grabs it and he plants it in reality. And he says this, you want to live like Jesus? You have hope. You can. You can live like Christ. If you are Christ and the Spirit lives within you and you have encouragement and comfort because you are a believer in Jesus, cast your gaze not to yourself but to Jesus Christ. See, listen, this is how the Christ hymn breaks down. Look at verses 6 and 7 there. So Paul exhorts his friends, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In verses 6 and 7, what he does is he shows them, as God, Christ emptied himself. He, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Then what did he do? He turned And as man, he humbled himself. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9, 10, and 11, there was a decided reaction amongst the heavenly courtroom that because the Son of God, cloaked in flesh, who came to earth, humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross, the most gruesome, despicable way to die in first century... Because Jesus did this, God has highly exalted him. God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, under earth, that what? Jesus Christ is the Lord, so they'll all abound and roll back up to the praise and the glory of the Father. See, Christ is our example. Christ is our power that defeats the heart attitude of pride and disunity. See, Christ was marked with true humility. That's what verses 6 through 8 show us. But what are verses 9 through 11 about, right? What you have is a sharp contrast where the humiliation of Jesus Christ is slammed decidedly against the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And so what are we to make of verses 9, 10, and 11? Yes, I see that by nature he, he, by being in very nature God, that he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, humbling himself to the point of death. But what is the point of verses 9, 10, 11, the exaltation of Jesus? And it is this, God was pleased with his humility and proved it with the exaltation of Christ. Do you want to know if humility, the way Jesus models humility, is a pleasing way to do humility in the eyes of God, all you have to do is look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 9, to and 11. Do you want to know if the way Christ humbled himself was, in a, was, a sat, was a sacrifice that was worthy and pleasing to God? All you have to do is look at verses 9, to 11. It's God. It's his clarion call. It's God walking through the doors, banging cymbals, blowing a trumpet. It's a ticker tape parade. It's the red flag waving. It's him blowing the whistle and marching down the aisle going, Hey, listen up. If you want to know if I'm satisfied in the way Jesus Christ lived his life in this way, modeling humility for us, if you want to know that this is legit, all you have to do is look at the exaltation, the status to which I've lifted Christ because of the way that he lived his life in Humility. And so then what that has mean for us is to go, okay, if Jesus modeled humility in this way, then it is worthy for me to model my life of humility in this way. The Philippians are challenged by Paul to look at the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And as they're reading this, because see, listen, the humility that Paul is calling for here, the humility of life that Jesus called for here from the Gospels, this wasn't, like, like, this wasn't the latest craze going on in the first century. To model your life in this way, operating with humility in the Roman Empire, first century A.D., was looked upon as being weak, was looked upon as being not powerful, was looked upon as, you can live your life in that way, but we're going to look down our nose upon you. You're a scum, you're a low, it's, it's too beneath some of the upper crust of people. And so Paul is punching that Christ him, that Christology right into people's face and go, that is baloney. Because if it was good for Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ lived his life in this way, and the proof that God was satisfied with this form of humility was that high exaltation of Jesus Christ, then you can rest assured that it is good for you to live out your life in this way. This was countercultural. Do you want to know how the world was turned upside down in first century A.D.? Is by people looking and operating their lives in such a way where it goes, "Good grief, man, you are different." It's not different just because they're dressing different, do different things. Their lives were markedly different because they are modeling themselves after Jesus Christ, specifically in this way. The Philippians are challenged by Paul to look to Christ, the supreme example of humility. So how do we respond to this? How do, how do we respond? I mean, this is like a glorious chunk of Scripture. I mean, it's, it's weighty. I mean, there could be another two, at least possibly three sermons just on Philippians 2, 5 through 11. But like, how do we boil this down? I mean, there's just so much application floating around in here. What is a right response for us in regard to Paul's challenge to be united through humility by looking to the supreme example of humility, Jesus Christ? See, in Philippi, there were issues of disunity among the brethren. Paul's answer for disunity was humility. From where does our strength come to live in humility towards others? The the strength comes from this. The answer to that question is it's Jesus, right? I mean, we could pull up the little kids from the herd if we want to. I mean, this is like the one legitimate time, right? It's like, what's the answer, little kid? Jesus? That's right, buddy. All right, going back downstairs, you know. So, right, I mean, this is, this is the right answer in this, in this place. What's your hope of being able to live in humility toward one another here in this church, Jesus? Through his example, through his humility. See, you've you got to understand this. Listen, if anyone had the right to live their life with selfish ambition, conceit, or looking only to their own interests, it would be Jesus, right? Jesus, third member of the Trinity, Son of God, cloaked and fresh here on earth, He's the incarnate son of God. He's the sovereign king. He's the most powerful prophet that's ever lived. He's the great high priest. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the one making sure that you're not just folding over dead on yourself right now. He's sustaining you. He's sustaining the world. He's sustaining our solar system. He's sustaining the universe. He called it into creation with the speaking of his word. If there's one person who were ever to show up on earth here in this moment, walk through these doors and go, listen, I am going to achieve the high exaltation that is due me because I am God all of verses 9 10 and 11 but i'm going to do it through the avenue of saying i have selfish ambition i've got some things to accomplish do what i say i'm going to look to myself because i am the pinnacle of all things if christ were to walk through that door and say these words we go man you know what i'm looking around and you really are the only one who has the right to say those sorts of things but what happens the exact opposite The one who had the right to say everything floats around me because I am the sovereign creator, sustainer, king of the universe comes and says, I'm going to do the exact opposite of what I have the right to do. So this becomes a principle for us. And that principle that Jesus Christ, the one who has the right to operate his life in this way, yet does the exact opposite teaches us at least these two things. From this, we get a principle for church life. So I want to apply what we have here to church, the way we interact one to another. And then what I want to do is take that principle and apply it to a little bit more nuanced way of life, and that is this, to the realm of marriage. Because as Paul was talking in this way, as Paul was talking to these people, it was a principle specifically applied to the church. You need to be united through humility by looking to Christ. But you've got to know that he, was, he wasn't saying is, but don't take this principle anywhere else. Don't take it just only to the people that you're sitting in the pews next to each other with, but you're also to take it to all of your relationships. So what I want to do is focus that down to the relationship of marriage, and we'll go through these things quickly, and then we'll be done. So a principle for church life but also a principle for all of life. A principle for church life is one way that we can respond. One area of response is your service in the church. And so I just got some questions for you as I was thinking through, how does this apply to me as being a member of Delta Church? And I had these questions here. You, church member, are you in humility counting others more significant than yourself by serving them with your gifts, with your time, with your ability, with your finances, with your prayers, etc.? if we go back to philippians 2 verse 1 there are things that are true of you that are just as much as true of me you've been given the spirit just as much as i've been given the spirit which means you've been given gifts of service which means i've been given gifts of service so how are you interacting with one another in these ways are you in humility counting others more significant than yourself by serving them with your gifts with your time your ability your finances your prayer in humility do you look to the interests of others or are you consumed with only your own interests See, serving people for what you can get out of the deal, that's not true service, right? Do do we understand this? Like coming to the table and going, man, I'm going to serve, but if the posture of your heart is this, I'm only going to give of my time, resources, finances, prayer, gifts, abilities, all these things just so that I can get something in return, whether that's the praise and the accolades of men, whether that's somehow some sort of crazy thought that you can get like advancement in the church, that you can somehow be made more right with God the Father because you're doing these things, you are defeating the purpose of serving because you're serving out of pride, not serving out of humility. Serving people for what you can get out of the deal is not true service. It is ultimately self-seeking rooted in pride. You may be serving in legitimate and true ways, but when you serve with this attitude of heart, each act of service spreads the seeds of disunity. This way of serving is anti-Christ. And I can say that because when Paul says, look at Jesus, we don't look at Jesus and go, listen, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, cloaked in flesh, I'm coming down here so I can just get something for myself. That's, that's my motivation here. But it says he emptied himself. He poured himself out. He was, he was doing this for salvation, for the sake of God's elect. See, this way of serving is antichrist. It is entirely possible. Listen, it is entirely possible to serve at Delta Church with wrong heart motives. There were some in Rome who were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. It's the exact same word when he says, listen, do nothing out of selfish ambition. That's a little jab, a little sting, because back in chapter 1, verse 17, he says there's actually people here in Rome who are preaching with this heart attitude of selfish ambition. And they would have connected those dots, and they would have said, Goo, woo, man, that's not, that wasn't good there in Rome. It's certainly not good of us. There were people who had this same heart attitude in Rome, preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. Listen, it was possible... If it was possible for them to live this way, it is certainly possible for us to slip into this way of thinking and acting. But serving them because this is the way that you spread the seeds of unity among the believers at Delta, that is the kind of heart attitude we want. So the question I have then is, so how do I discern? Like, how do you go like, okay, am I there? I mean, how can I discern the posture of my heart when it comes to serving the church? And I think you can be asked this one question. What brings you... Joy? What brings you more joy? How you answer that question, I think, will discern Am I serving out of pride or am I serving out of humility? See, when you ask yourself the question, What brings me more joy? If you answer, Well, what brings me joy is serving so that someone will make much of me. It's like, Well, there, the hard attitude there is probably pride, right? This is the attitude that's marked by pride and disunity. But if you can say, What brings me joy is when someone makes much of Christ, then this is an attitude marked by humility that leads to the unity. Listen. It's like this, it's meant to be like this self-giving cycle, right? So I come and go, man, because Christ saved me, because I have the Spirit, because Christ saved you, and because you have the Spirit, so I can look to my brother Tom here, and I can say, brother, I want to serve you. I want to serve you. And it brings me joy in humbling myself and serving you. And, and I'm excited by that. The cup of my heart is filled to the brim. And then he goes, man, you know, I'm so, I'm so unworthy of that. I want to humble myself and serve that person, not because I'm going to get something out of it, but because in my joy, I'm serving you. So it becomes this big cycle where everyone's sort of pouring themselves out, outdoing one another in honor, outdoing one another in love, to where it's like, man, I want to serve you, and it brings me joy to serve you. And you go, man, I just received joy because I've just been served, and that makes me want to have joy in serving you. And it's like, there's all this pouring out and outdoing one another in love, and unity becomes the inevitable response of that. That's the question that you can ask. Listen, If Christ Jesus, who had the right to cling to his divinity, listen, if Christ Jesus, who had the right to cling to his divinity and did not do so, and is the same Christ Jesus that saved us and made us his own, what right do we have to do anything other than emulate his humility? Like, what right? Like, I mean, I'm willing to be challenged on this. Come to me. Like, what right do you have to go, you know what? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I have the spirit. Yeah, I've experienced the way Christ humbled himself and brought me to salvation but i have every right to stand up and do the exact opposite of jesus that's what paul's pressing before these brothers and sisters here that's how it's challenged me and that's how i challenge you secondly and lastly here we'll be done not only is the principle of what we see here a principle for the church but it's a principle for life and what i want to do is to challenge us how we can respond in another way And what I want to do is go, okay, within this bigger umbrella of the church, what I want to do is narrow it down to this realm of relationships, the realm of, specifically, marriage. See, when you're reading through Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, when you read verse 1, those four exhortations that are true of you are also true of your spouse. If both of you are believers in Jesus Christ, what is true of you, husband, is this, that you do have encouragement in Christ. You do have comfort from Christ's love. You do have participation in the Spirit, and you do have tender mercy and compassion that are now yours because of Jesus. That is true of you. And what is just as equally true is this, your spouse, who, if they are also a believer, has also received encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and they have received the tender mercy and compassion of Jesus Christ. So, with that being said, It's basically everything I've just said in regards to the church. Now we're just talking about the way you interact between husband and wife, wife to husband. So how can there be disunity with this co-heir of Christ? You, husband, if you look at your wife and go, there is disunity between me and my wife, then the question I have for you is, where is the area of pride that's operating in your heart? Because I think these are two correlating truths. If you have humility, humility will inevitably give birth to, to unity. If there is disunity in your marriage, what I'm challenging you is that we need to dig back the dirt and look at the foundation and go, there's an awesome, awesome, like 99.9% chance that the foundation of the disunity that is operating in your marriage is rooted on the foundation of pride. Somewhere, in some way, shape, or form, there is disunity in your life because you're building that disunity on the foundation of pride. See, Christ and the church is a covenant relationship. Marriage is the one earthly relationship that images the Christ-church relationship. So if the church is to be marked by unity through humility, how much more so are marriages? How do people know about the great relationship between Christ and the church? It's by looking at you as a husband and a wife, the way you interact with each other. The scriptures are complete with this. Go read Ephesians chapter 5. The one relationship God has set up on earth that screams, if you look at me, you're looking at the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. It is the marriage covenant between one man and one woman. So, if that is true, then everything we just said can be plugged onto the grid of your marriage and the way you interact, husband to wife, and the way you interact wife to husband. Where there is disunity within your marriage, I am telling you there has got to be some root of pride below the service. So the root of nearly all of your squabbles, the root of your miscommunications, the root of well, he was saying and what she was saying and well her story was this and my story was that, the root of fights, the root of your cold shoulders, the root of your curt words, the root of your hurt feelings, the root of your unanswered prayers, and on and on and on, stems from a heart of selfish ambition. You're in that relationship trying to get something for you. It stems from a heart of conceit, excessive pride in yourself. Extends from a heart of you looking out only for your own interests as not giving two rips about the interests of your other spouse. See, pride is the pregnant mother that can only give birth to disunity. Pride can never give birth to anything else. If there is disunity in your marriage, pride is in the mix somewhere. And this is why Paul's call to unity through humility is not a witch hunt in your spouse. It begins with you, right? The worst thing you can do, walk out of here and be like, well, Pastor John said. All right, stand there rubbing your hands. We've got some disunity in our marriage. Why don't you get yourself right? It's like, whoop. Like the person who says that, is operating out of pride, man. You know, just look in the mirror, brother. You're saying that from a heart not of humility, right? So it's not a witch hunt. It's not go home and go disunity, fix yourself. It's no disunity. Christ, help me to see in the mirror of scriptures where I'm operating out of pride. Listen, I'll say the same thing I just said a little while ago. If Christ Jesus, who had the right to cling to his divinity and did not do so, is the same Christ Jesus that saved you and saved your spouse and made you his own, brother and sister, what right do you have to do anything other than emulate his humility one to another? I mean, what right do you have? And I want to press on the husbands here real quick, and I'll be done. Listen, in that re- covenantal relationship, when we speak of covenantal relationships, there's the covenant between Christ and His church. And Paul, in the language he uses in Ephesians chapter 5, says this, when you look at this true reality, Christ and the church, there is one relationship on earth that mirrors that. It is the husband as he relates to the wife. And Paul uses this terminology the way that Christ shows up, in that analogy is the way that we see the husband, and the way that the church shows up in that analogy is the way we see the, our, our bride, our wife. So when we look at Ephesians chapter 5, and the pressure that I want to put back on you as husbands is this, is if in that marriage covenant, in that relationship between the husband and the wife, if you are the one who's standing in the place, not as Jesus, because you're not Jesus, but as you stand in the place of the one in that relationship who is to image Jesus, how dare you enter into your marriage and operate from a heart of pride? I mean, how dare you? What right do you have to do that? Cuz if you are reading the scriptures and if you are soaking in the word, Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 come at you like a spotlight on a train and show you you are in sin, brother. What right do you have to do that? You are to bend your knee and you're to go to the Father and you're to go, God help me to live like Christ in my relationship with Jesus with my bride. And then that becomes the thing that spills over into the church because if you are leading this way at home, then you'll be marked as a believer who is leading and living this way and everywhere else. And then you'll become one amongst many brothers that are here in this relationship of the church going, man, you know what? I- I'm trying to live like Jesus. I'm trying to live out like humility. He modeled it for me. It's attainable. Philippians two five tells me I can have this. I'm owning on this. It's a promise. I'm banking on this. Christ gives give it to me, please, Christ, give it to me, mold me, shape me, conform me, conform me, and over and over, Paul says in the New Testament that we'll be conformed to Christ, we're being conformed to Christ, and this is one of the ways where if you pray, God, help me, because I see that I'm marked by disunity, help me to live in unity, I think that is a prayer that God finds delight in answering. Don't walk out of these doors, husband, going, I see disunity in my marriage in whatever way, and then turn around to your wife and go, fix yourself. Don't do it. Model Christ. Live out humility. Let me end with this. The divine remedy for all of this is given by Paul. You're to look to Christ, the supreme example of humility. That's your answer. That's your hope. Look to Jesus. Lead like Jesus. Press into the Spirit and say, Father, help me to emulate Jesus in my relationship to my bride, in my relationship to the church, so that we may be a winsome people who exhibit unity through humility. Let's pray father we love you we truly do you are our hope you are our salvation and God that last bit there I mean uh, if that was for anybody it was for me as people getting to hear me preach to myself right there because I can clearly look a lot across the panorama of my my years with my wife and go man I can see there's seasons and there's times where There was disunity, there was fights, there was miscommunications, there was just all kinds of just everything that were not to be marked by, and it's like basically it's always come back to me, like going, me looking at my own heart going, yeah, man, I am muffed that one, man. That was me living like anti-Christ, not living like Christ. So God, I pray for my brothers, the husbands that are here, those who desire to be husbands one day, that you would build this and root this within them. I pray for my sisters in Christ, the wives that are here, and those who desire to be wives someday, that they would also seek to live their lives in this way, and that we would all come together, and that we as brothers and sisters in Christ would seek to live our lives in this way. Again, not rooting on works, but rooting ourselves in the grace of the Father. God, help us to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.